गौर प्रेमानंदी हरि हरि हो Hare Krishna. Thank you all for listening those who are here in Atlanta and all of you who are in other places superficially because actually spiritually we're all in the same place at the lotus feet of Prabhupada and Krishna. Like to especially thank my dear godbrother Balabhadra Hatacharya for giving us just a sample of his very famous bhajans and kirtans. A lifelong, a lifelong devotee of Prabhupada's mission. So we're all set. So I have been asked to speak today on the topic of Krishna and Balaram. And of course, great sages, acharyas have been talking about this for, well, actually forever. So. I will speak on one aspect of this topic which I personally find very interesting and also extremely important for a correct understanding of our philosophy which we should not take for granted especially because the topic I'm going to speak on now is something that Prabhupada does talk about but perhaps not quite in the way I want to and that's what Prabhupada said actually now Balabhadra Prabhupada you remember this where Prabhupada said that um, if you speak on the Bhagavatam every day there always be new lights and so hopefully I'm not dragging a shadow across our theology but, but actually bringing a light so my initial assumption about our philosophy in approaching this topic of Krishna and Balaram is that we are actually monotheists we actually know that there is ultimately one god i was not born into explicitly vaishnav culture but on the other hand i was not born into also a, a a trinitarian culture which i think is not exactly monotheism i was uh, born into a tradition which really really emphasized uh, monotheism there's one god and of course we have a, a loving relationship with that god but still there's one god we have an interesting actually a fascinating unique uh phenomenon in krishna or in the descriptions of Krishna in authorized books, namely that he expands himself into many other forms. And this topic you could call avatara theology. And so in uh, Sanskrit terms, they would say that what we're doing now is avatara vichara, which means an investigation into that. In fact, in the, uh, I believe, the uh, second stanza of that beautiful and famous song, the Six Goswamis, it said, Nana Shastra Vichara Naika Nipunel. Yeah, some said Dharma, some Stapako. So, Nana means many or varieties. 
So nana, shastra, vichara, in the analysis, which is vichara, in the analysis or the investigation of many shastras, the six Goswamis were nana, shastra, vichara, naika, nipuno. Uh, they were eka, nipuna. Uh, actually, it's vicharana here. The vichara or vicharana is the same word. I won't go into the grammatical details, but it means the same thing. So, um, eka in Sanskrit means one. Eka means one, but it's also used to mean unique or singular. So, and nipuna, of course, means expert. So Eka Nibunao and the Ao, the, the ending Nibunao is because this song was written in the dual case. In Sanskrit, in most languages, there's a singular or plural, like the book, the books, or in Spanish, el libro, most libros. However, in Sanskrit, as well as in, I believe, ancient Greek, perhaps Latin, there is the singular, and then there's a dual form and the plural. So uh, the song of the Cisco Samis is very beautiful. All those words ending in A-U. But they rupa sanatanao, ragu yugao, sijiva gopala kao. The reason you have all these words ending in A-U, which is an unusual composition, is because the author, Srinivasacharya, in something which is very, um, what's the word? Uh, kind of like different and interesting from a literary point of view, he has divided the Cisco Samis into three pairs. And by that means, he has written the whole song in the dual form. And there are very few songs written in the dual form like this, so it's, a, it's really a unique combination. So Vande Rupa Sanatana means Rupa Sanatana, like the two of them. And then the next pair is which means the the pair of the literally it means the ragu pair. Ragu you go. It's interesting because you know the word yoga means to link, and from the same root you have yuga, which means a pair, like two things that are linked. So ragu you go, Jiva gopalako. And of course, uh, Gopala Bhatta Goswami was the youngest, and therefore the author writes Sri Jiva and little Gopal. That's what it means. <laughs> Gopala, and then uh, in, in many languages, there's a, sort of a diminutive form, like in Spanish, if you were saying little Gopal in Spanish, it would be Gopalito. <laughs> so in Sanskrit, it's Gopala Ko. So Sriji and little Gopal was <laughs> the youngest. Anyway, so. In the second stanza of this song, Nana Shastra, varieties of Shastras, many Shastras, Vicharana, in the analysis and the study, the investigation of varieties of Shastras, the six Goswamis were Eka Nibuna, they were singular experts. Singular experts. And their purpose was Sadharma Sanstapaka. They were establishing uh, Sadharma, eternal 
principles of life. We can say religious principles, but just eternal principles of life. And uh, anyway, if you can if you can stand it, I'll explain a little more. Some stopico. I find this very interesting myself. Uh, some means together, as in Sankirtan. So Sankirtan literally means together kirtan with other people. And uh, and stop, it, therefore it also means do something very well or completely. It also means like fully, completely. And uh, stop, we have in English still, hasn't changed with Sanskrit words like stand, status, and so on. And so, and stapaka, stapa, the P means, it means making something stand. Making something stand, in other words, establishing it. Establishing it, which the sta is there in the word established. So, sun stapako, in other words, the, these are the people, the Goswamis, who made the uh, Sadharma, the eternal spiritual principles, made them stand, in other words, establish them. And in pursuit of that goal, they uh, were singular experts of Shastra. So here I am, meanwhile, back on Buloka. Uh, I'm going to try to explain uh, the fact that Krishna expands himself into many forms. First being Balaram, of course there's Vasudev, Pravyumna, Sankarsana, Niruddha, and so on, called the chapter of Yuha, literally like like the uh, like the fourfold formation and so on. And so the point I want to make just to get to the conclusion um, is that there is one God. And therefore even though Krishna perfectly plays the part of another person, Balaram, actually Balaram is Krishna. There's one God. And that is stated very clearly in the Brahma Sanghita, which Lord Chaitanya himself brought back to the Vaishnava community. He found this book. I mean, he obviously put it there so we could find it. But he... He found this book in South India, in Rameshwaram, and then he brought it back. And so one of the verses there is about Krishna, about Govindam. Advaitam, that's literally not two, non-dual. Advaitam, achutam, Krishna, Govinda is infallible. Advaitam, achutam, anadim, he has no origin, he's the origin of everything. And Here's the part that uh, is especially pertinent. Ananta Rupam. Anta. Anta in Sanskrit we still have in English. Almost the same word as end. Ant. And so Ananta means endless or, or limitless or infinite. So Krishna has endless, limitless, infinite forms. Rupam. And yet, all those forms are Advaitam. There's only one God. There's only one God. And um, that's the message we get very clearly in Bhagavad Gita, that there's one God. Krishna shows, in fact, 
different forms to Arjuna. He shows in the universal form. And finally, when Arjuna recovers from seeing the universal form, then at Arjuna's request, Krishna shows him the forearm form of Narayan, and then again, Krishna. Krishna. So, um, I often think of Krishna Balaram as kind of God uh, using the technique of good cop, bad cop. Um, as you know, we're very well known criminology technique, good cop, bad cop. Uh, so that, for example, Krishna uh, took a very strong position against Duryodhan and uh, his corrupt government. And Balaram tried to befriend him. People often ask, why did Balaram befriend Duryodhana? And I think for several reasons that are obvious. One is that Balaram was giving him a chance to rectify himself. And Krishna, through his form as Balaram, was also establishing a principle which is stated often in the Bhagavatam. It's often stated in the Bhagavatam. And that is that um, the principle is that um, Krishna is actually equal to everyone despite the appearance that he favors the devas over the asuras. So because sometimes, unfortunately, there are people, even so-called Vaishnavas, who claim that Krishna sort of whimsically, he has the power and right of divine whimsy, so that by causeless mercy, which by the way is not a term found in any Shastra, that simply by causeless mercy, he just blesses someone who's no more deserving than a bunch of other people who are not blessed and therefore are going to suffer. Now, as we know, if you as a parent treated your children this way, the government might take your children away from you. It would be considered actually criminal and morally reprehensible. If you severely punished one child and another child did exactly the same thing, okay, here's some candy for you. In other words, a parent that did this would really be an incompetent, morally deficient parent. And to attribute incompetence and moral deficiency to God is a big mistake. We find this tendency to sort of over like to want to emphasize so much God's independence, he can do whatever he wants, that we attribute to him injustice and uh, practically foolishness, which of course he's not unjust and he's not foolish. The fact is that Krishna can do whatever he wants, but might doesn't make right. You could say that if there was a God who chose to do something unfair, simply because he's God and is all powerful, is that unfair act fair? And the answer is no, because mere power does not make injustice justice. That's called the law of the jungle. And Krishna does not govern by the law of the jungle. He governs, as explained in the Bhagavatam, by his infinite goodness. And therefore Krishna chooses, as he explains in Bhagavad Gita, 
He chooses freely to be fair. And therefore, we should not foolishly claim he's unfair just because we can't, by the, by, by the wrong idea that we can't really establish that Krishna can do what he wants unless we claim that he does do something absurd just to prove that he can do what he wants. It's like saying that a parent, just to prove that the parent has authority over the child, you know, the, the parent throws the child off a cliff or something. Well, you know, parents have to do that just to prove that they have authority over their children. So, um, the fact here is that um, Krishna chooses freely as God to do the right thing. And he, claims, he says that very clearly in Bhagavad Gita, that he says, There's also another current among some people, devotees who are imagining falsely that they have such an advanced understanding that they can discard the Bhagavad Gita. There's another foolishness. And uh, Krishna says very clearly in the Gita, Samoham, I'm equal. Sarva Bhuteshu, to all living beings. Namme Dveshyosti, I have no enmity toward anyone. Could you please uh, open and close that door very quietly or use another door? You, you there. Yeah, please be very quiet because there's a lecture going on. Thank you. So, um, Krishna says, Namme dvesha. Dvesha means envy or hatred. In other words, I don't hate anyone. I'm not against anyone. Namme priya. And no one is my favorite. And that's what, didn't your parents tell you that? You know, that we love our, all our... So how can God be morally inferior to just an ordinary good human parent? And if someone gives the answer, well, because he's God, again, do people who have power need to show their power by doing something stupid? By doing something morally wrong? Just to show you that I can do it, just to show you that I'm the authority. So this kind of nonsense is sometimes preached, uh, but it's not actually the case. So there's a type of vanity there's a type of material pride where one, one wants to outdo other people in theology. Uh, but actually, we should just pay attention to what Krishna is actually saying in the Bhagavad Gita. So in that Bhagavad Gita, Krishna shows himself to be for, the forehand in Narayana, and he's the same person. Arjun doesn't say, I know there's another person that has forearms, could you show him? He says, let me see your four-handed form, just another form that you have. And we find, for example, that when uh, Krishna left the Rasa dance, the great disappointment of the gopis, and they were searching for him, and they were running madly about trying to find Krishna, and Krishna thought, okay, let's see what happens. And so he, he just appeared as, as in his four-handed form. <laughs> And the gopis came by and wanted to know, I mean, imagine this, like the greatest yogis, the greatest philosophers, the greatest saints, 
are trying for so many lives to catch even a tiny little glimpse of God. And here the gopis saw this form of Narayan and they simply asked directions. <laughs> like, do you know which way Krishna went? <laughs> and then they looked at him and wait a second. <laughs> and the gopis loved Krishna so much that just they looked at him, he actually couldn't hold his forearm form. So he kind of, you know, popped back into his two-handed form. <laughs> So there you have it, right in Krishna Leela, you have it right in the Bhagavad Gita, that all these forms of Narayan, they're just Krishna. And since we know that the Narayan forms are expansions specifically of Balaram, how could Balaram be a different person and yet his personal expansions are different than him? In other words, it just becomes a big mess. If you try to say there are two gods or three or 18 or whatever, better stick with one. Because these Narayan forms expand from Balaram, and yet Balaram, and yet Narayan is Krishna. Because in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna said, let me see your Narayan form. And Krishna changed into Narayan and back to Krishna in front of the gopis. So if all the forms coming from Balaram are actually Krishna, guess who Balaram is? Yeah, so... I mean, how would I explain to my family that I gave up monotheism? So actually we are, so there's one God. So Krishna and Balaram, Krishna, I mean, Lord Balaram, he offered his friendship to Duryodhana for various reasons. One is to show the world that even if one of his children misbehaves, God still tries to help that person. And uh, so Duryodhana ultimately rejected that offer and therefore Balaram left. He did not fight the battle of Kurukshetra. And, and as I've explained, the Bhagavatam talks about this a lot. Only in a Hare Krishna temple. <laughs> That, uh, I mean, literally. So it's, um, what was I saying? Yes, so the Bhagavatam often mentions, the Bhagavatam often mentions that um, the Krishna is equal to everyone. And so he actually demonstrated this. He actually demonstrated this. And he, so as Balaram, Krishna did not take part in Guru Kshetra, and yet he did as Krishna. So he illustrated both these theological points that he's equal to everyone, but then also he reciprocates because the Pandavas wanted to, not simply to get Krishna's help as an ally, but the Pandavas wanted to serve Krishna. They wanted to do what Krishna wanted. And so therefore Krishna, because to be equal to everyone means to reciprocate. It means, for example, let's say you own a store and you have different products. Let's say you sell apples. And let's say the apples cost a dollar each. 
uh, because they're organic. <laughs> so uh, if someone buys two apples, that's $2. If someone buys, takes three apples, it's $3. You could say, well, I thought you treat all your customers fairly. You should charge everyone the same price, no matter how many apples they take. But that's not what it means. That's not what it means to treat everyone fairly. It means to reciprocate. You take five apples, it's $5. One apple is $1. And that's exactly what Krishna does. As you, as you approach him, as you behave toward him, he reciprocates with you. Therefore, Krishna's favoring the Pandavas against the Kurus. He's just being fair. That is equality. That is equanimity. Whereas giving two equally deserving people completely different results, one of them goes to hell, one of them is saved by causeless mercy, that's not fair. That's not equality because Krishna is not doing or wouldn't be doing what he claims to do in the Gita, namely reciprocate with everyone. So the example the Bhagavatam always addresses, namely that Krishna defended the Devas and defended the Pandavas and defeated the Asuras, the Bhagavatam repeatedly explains Krishna is being fair. He is being equal to everyone. The Bhagavatam doesn't even raise the point of giving liberation to one person and punishment to another person on the same level. The Bhagavatam doesn't even address that because only a fool could think that God would do that. And the Bhagavatam is simply addressing serious points of view, not utter nonsense. Actually, in chapter 6, in chapter 6 of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna explains why someone is drawn to the Hare Krishna movement. And he says, it's purvabhyasena It is by that person's purvabhyasa. In the Bhagavad Gita, you find the word of vyasa. In later Sanskrit, during Lord Chaitanya's time, the word is sadhana, spiritual practice. In the Gita, the word uses avyasa which means literally like repetition, so you practice something. So in Purva, we still have in English the word previous from the Sanskrit Purva. So Purva Vyasena, by previous practice, and Krishna says, Tenaiva, by that alone. By previous practice and by that alone, Hriyate, a person is carried, he indeed, Avasha, almost involuntarily, uh, to Krishna consciousness. And in another verse, that's in the same section, the next verse right next to it, Krishna says that uh, he talks about uh, he talks about buddhing porvadehikam lavate buddhing porvadehikam that someone who has practiced Krishna consciousness in the past then recovers that buddhi that spiritual intelligence, which is Purvadehika, which comes from the Purvadeha, the previous body. So Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita does not mention the term Agyata Sukriti. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but the example of Agyata Sukriti is Ajamila. Ajamila. Now, in the case of Ajamila, what we do not see 
is that someone got more than they deserved because he accidentally called out Narayan at the end of his life. That's not what the story is teaching. What the story is actually teaching is what Krishna explains in the Gita, Neha Vikramanashosti, Pratyavayo Navidyate. In this Dharma, there's no loss or diminution. And whatever you once do is your eternal credit. Whatever you do for Krishna, you will keep in your spiritual bank account forever. Ajamila voluntarily, intentionally, consciously practiced Krishna consciousness. And he achieved an advanced level. Then he fell down, he was degraded. But at the end of his life, he chanted Narayan, or he didn't chant, he called Narayan to his son. But that revived the Krishna conscious, exactly what Krishna says, Purvabhyasena, by previous practice, Tenaiva, by that alone. And so Ajamila was restored to a position he had earned by spiritual practice and given a chance to continue. If you look at all the verses in the Bhagavatam that say, for example, uh, in the first chapter, that simply by chanting Krishna's name, one can be liberated. What you'll find is that in those verses, the verb is not in the indicative case. It doesn't just mean, it doesn't say, Muchate, one is liberated. It says, Vimucheta, which means one may be liberated. One may be liberated. And of course, that depends on one's spiritual credit. So Krishna goes to great lengths in the Bhagavad Gita and Krishna and the Acharyas and Bhagavatam to explain that he is fair. I mean, who, maybe you could surrender to a God who is not even fair. You're, I mean, don't you remember what it's like for a child to have parents that are not fair? It's horrible. It's a horrible experience. If you're born in a family, which I hope none of you were, in which your parents are simply not fair, and they just egregiously favor one child over another, it's, uh, it's practically abusive. Why would Krishna treat his own spiritual children abusively and whimsically liberate one, while another person, equally deserving or equally undeserving, is punished? So to attribute these ignorant, unjustifiable qualities to God, is no service, even if one imagines that, no, I'm just trying to show how independent God is. You find this in Augustine, a, a philosopher who, uh, anyway, did some things for which he's glorified and caused a lot of harm. You find it in Calvinism. It, it, it's, it's a current in theology that comes up now and then by people who just are not thinking clearly. The idea that in order to show how free God is, we have to attribute to him reprehensible behavior. So anyway, Krishna, Balaram, by appearing in both these forms, it gives Krishna flexibility, agility. He, I mean, Krishna is everywhere all the time, but in his pastimes, he can be in two places at one time, and he has these different forms. So those are some of the statements I wanted to make about Krishna and Balaram. Uh, now, if there are any questions. Yes, follow Vatraji. Maharaj, you spoke very succinctly about 
people using logic, logic for God in a certain context. So is it, is it true that logic itself has a limit, that the limit to human logic? Yes. So, so is it plausible that outside human logic, God operates in this way outside? Very good question. Actually, could you come here and ask a question? <laughs> Not that I want, I want you. This is your chance. This con, this con Atlanta's got talent. Come on. <laughs> this is, again, my godbrother, Bob Butler. He had a very, very interesting question he's going to ask. Here, can you? Maybe I should come on this side. Yeah, come on this side. More logical. Yeah. More logical. Then we'll uh, turn this around here. There you are. See my memory. Sorry. So my question is to the point about logic. Yes. That isn't it true that human logic has a limit? So can it be that God can operate outside the limits of human human logic, where certain activities would fall into that realm outside of human logic? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oops. Um, here I am. Okay, first point I want to make is that in our literature, in our in the Shastra, whenever logic is described as limited, it's practically always in the sense that by our mere human logic we cannot understand the ultimate identity of God. And so here we are actually, or I am, repeating Krishna's own logic. Because Krishna says over and over again in the Gita that if you are really intelligent, you will see all living beings equal. Pandita samadarshana, samat sarveshu bhuteshu mad bhakti lavate param. So I'm not using my logic, I'm actually surrendering to Krishna's logic. And I'm taking Krishna's logic seriously. I'm believing what Krishna is telling me in Bhagavad Gita. And I'm trying to understand life by taking Krishna seriously. So. In fact, I'm going to turn this one around. <laughs> Not on you, because I know you were just asking. <laughs> if Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, as he does, as people approach me, Tam, those people, Tataiva, precisely in that way, uh, I reciprocate. Now, that's what Krishna states. If I believe what Krishna says, I'm not trying to subject Krishna to my human logic. I'm simply believing what he says. If you say that, well, Krishna says that, but he didn't really mean it, or he actually does something else, you are the one who are using your own, frankly, bizarre and absurd so-called so logic to change what Krishna said. So therefore, uh, I'm using logic given to me by Krishna. Mm -hmm. 
as opposed to trying to use a pseudo logic to say that, well, we don't really follow Bhagavad Gita because we're too advanced for that. As soon as someone says, I'm too advanced for Bhagavad Gita, uh, I see that person as, what should I say? Very problematic. If someone claims to be advanced and so advanced they're beyond Krishna's own words, and some people are so foolish they actually follow that person, then it's unfortunate. I don't think that I've transcended Bhagavad Gita. I love Bhagavad Gita, and I think whatever Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita is eternally true. Parampara, another senior Vaishnava who's rendered great service to Prabhupada's mission. Want to ask a question? Please come up to the uh, isolation booth. It seems to me that this idea of... This is Parampara Das, who is heroically maintaining the with other... Great devotees, Marari Seva Farm. Marari Seva Kijai. Sri Sri Nitai Gura Tundra Kijai. He's also wearing a Vedic chin covering. <laughs> it seems to me this, this question of uh, uh, Krishna being equal to everyone is also tied to the perennial question of uh, how can, how does, why does God do bad things to good people? That's the, that's the, was a, was a, sort yes. of a, a typical, sort of a challenge or sort of I know. question. It's about called the problem of evil. The problem of evil or theodicy, if you can maybe yes. read those together. Weave. <laughs> um, yes, uh, Krishna doesn't do bad things to good people. Everyone gets exactly what they deserve. We do not subscribe to the, frankly, um, hopelessly illogical idea <laughs> I mean, just th that this is our first life, that God creates a soul, and so this is your first life. Uh, that's just not true. The soul is not material. It's only material things that begin and end, not eternal things. That's why Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Nasato Vidyate Bhavo. For that which is temporary, there's no true existence in Na Bhavo Vidyate Sataha. And for that which is truly eternal, there's no non existence. Therefore, uh, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. If someone is good in this life and something bad happens, it means there was a hiccup in the past life or in some past life. And, uh, you know, and so eventually Krishna, out of his mercy, uh, delivers that reaction to the person so that person can go on toward perfection. The problem of evil theodicy, it's also called in philosophy, from the Greek word theos, which means God, and dk, which means justice. Like, is there justice in God? Mm -hmm. and, if, and if God is just, why do we see so much injustice in a world which he ultimately controls? Mm -hmm. And uh, the simple answer is that um, there is no injustice. I mean, there is. There's human injustice, but behind that human injustice, there is a divine justice. And again, in the Middle Eastern traditions, which do not understand that there's a soul completely separate from the body, and therefore think that, and, th and thought that um, this life is our first life, 
uh, it's it's really a problem. Now it's very interesting. There was there was a famous philosopher who taught many years at the University of Notre Dame named Alvin Plantinga. He was a very good philosopher, but he tried to give a defense. He tried to show that there can be a God in terms of just you know neutral philosophy, even though there's this injustice in the world. And his argument was that God um, allows some injustice in order to prevent a greater evil. And uh, it's kind of like that example, let's say for example, I mean, there's a Harvard professor that you know gives this example that in I think undergraduate philosophy classes, that let's say you're driving a train and um, you see that up ahead, there's some people trapped on the track. And if you go straight ahead, you will kill all those people. However, there's a another track that goes off from your track and you actually can, you have the, you have the power to drive the train onto that other track in which there's only one person and, uh, but you'll kill that one person because the train is going too fast to stop. So do you kill the five people or the one person? Of course, most people think, well, kill the one person. And so Plantica gave an argument like that. God is allowing evil to prevent a greater evil. The greater evil would be to deprive us of free will. So that if we did not have the free will to do bad things, uh, that would be a greater evil because it would destroy what it means to be a person. Now, and some atheists actually bought that, although from our point of view, there's a much stronger version of that argument. The stronger version of that argument would be that God does protect our free will because it would be a great evil to deprive us of free will because then we wouldn't be persons. However, because there is reincarnation, therefore Krishna very brilliantly, and this is very sophisticated math, he actually arranges so that people who he knows intend, seriously intend to do bad things, he connects them to people who have seriously bad karma. And so therefore, rather than, you know, the, the train conductor killing one person instead of five, actually what happens is there's a magic break on the Vaishnav train <laughs> and the conductor stops the train and no one gets killed. So Plantinga, of course, is operating within the kind of claustrophobic worldview of Christianity that this is our first life. But when you understand that we're eternal, we have many lives, then God prevents the evil of destroying free will and yet does not need to allow injustice to do that. Yes. Yes. Yes, Indra, Indra does in the sixth camp, does a lot of bad things, and yet Krishna doesn't exactly protect him. First of all, in the case of Vishwarupa, um, there might have been a better way to handle that, but it's the fact that Vishwarupa was off empowering the bad guys. And um, 
That was a problem. The Asuras threaten the universe, the Devas are meant to protect the universe. And so the whole point of offering through Vedic sacrifice, I won't get into all the details here, but it actually empowers the, the person for whom the sacrifice is performed. So empowering Asuras is uh, not a great idea. And Indra was punished for that. He, I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the, the, uh, the Bhagavatam, Indra is always getting into trouble and he suffers because of it. Yes. Yes, in chapter 7, Pariksi questions whether Lord Vishnu is really fair. Yeah, because that's the purpose of the Bhagavatam, to speak for us, to raise our questions, our doubts. And that's why the Bhagavatam is so brilliant. Yes. Uh, you just mentioned a little earlier that uh, Krishna dealt and the way you approach him is yes. important. So in this grassashram, this corporate life, we have, we have corporate ambitions to succeed. So what is your suggestion of guidance? You know, how we should approach Krishna at the same time? Yes. Also fulfill our, our uh, corporate goals. That's the first question. Oh, let me repeat that and answer it. So because otherwise we'll... Uh, lose track here. Um, well, he asked that um, the Christian says to always think of him and yet if one is engaged out in the world, corporate life, then how can you be Krishna conscious in that life? And of course, Krishna answers that. He says, Jet Kuroshi, whatever you do, Tat Kurusha Marapana, make that an offering to me. So if you work in the corporate world, that obviously belongs to Krishna. I mean, they may not know it, but the buildings, the, the people, the assets, it's all Krishna's energy. And so you're working to advance your career. And actually, the more you advance your career, the better it is for Prabhupada's mission. I mean, because ISKCON desperately needs members who have some influence in society. You just have to remember who you are and what you're doing. It's like, let's say, I mean, when I was at Harvard doing my graduate work and I would hear professors sometimes kind of ridicule things that I hold sacred, I just thought, well, you know, I will, I'm, I'm, I'm going to achieve my goals here. And, uh, and, and it worked, you know, I got my degree and I've been able to, you know, travel around the world, try to explain things with a certain level of expertise, with a certain level of credibility uh, because of that. And so when I was at Harvard, I just thought, I'll get the last laugh. <laughs> I mean, not, I mean, my professors were actually very nice. I mean, I, they were very kind to me and they were very helpful. But I thought that by getting this knowledge, I can not only go out there and just, you know, blast away all the nonsense that non-devotees are saying, you know, not just that, but, but also I think it's really helped me to formulate for myself and for other thinking people, devotees, sort of a rational understanding of Krishna consciousness. So I think that has been at least as valuable that I've been able to um, understand 
my own life and Krishna and Prabhupada in a more reasonable way. That was actually Prabhupada's instruction to me. In 1969, in a totally unexpected and dramatic act, I moved into the Hare Krishna temple. In, In Berkeley, I was 20 years old and I would say not mature for my age. I think I was just 20 years old. <laughs> you remember how we were. <laughs> and so um, so I didn't know whether I, I had a scholarship at Berkeley. I was supposed to be a senior, but due to some uh, sort of deviation, detours on the road, I was, anyway. So uh, I wrote a letter to Prabhupada asking him whether I should stay in school or just drop out of school and do regular temple service. I was in the temple. Prabhupada wrote back to me and asked me to finish my education. He he indicated that I needed a good education in order to present Krishna consciousness to other educated people. And of course, at the time I was 20 years old and, you know, trying to become fixed in Krishna consciousness and deal with the, to be kind, you know, highly agnostic worldview of UC Berkeley. I, um, I, I couldn't really do it, so I dropped out first, and I had to go back later. But ultimately, how can I present Krishna consciousness to intelligent, educated people in a reasonable, convincing way if I don't have a rational understanding myself? So some doubts appear in my mind or they appear in the minds of others. There must be a reasonable explanation. My inspiration to take up this process was that it was a spiritual science. I was thrilled by that idea that I had discovered a spiritual science. I wasn't looking for a new religion. I already had one. My parents gave me a religion. You know, everyone's nice and you know, they worship God. I didn't need a religion. I needed a spiritual science. So um, in the same way, uh, if you're in the corporate world, uh, Rupa and Sanatana were in the corporate world. I mean, you know, they were, so Prabhupada was in the corporate world. So that's real Krishna consciousness. To see Krishna in the temple is nice, but it doesn't make you a genius. I mean, anyone, you know, I mean, anyone who has a little spiritual intelligence can see that that's Krishna. To see Krishna in the corporate world is actually an achievement. That shows real Krishna consciousness. That shows advancement. And so rather than lamenting because, you know, the corporation you work for isn't a mandir, what the Bhagavatam explains is that it is a mandir. There's a verse in the Bhagavatam that says, Archayam eva haraye pujang Literal, give you a very literal translation. Yeah, one who ihate undertakes Puja undertakes puja uh, harav unto Hari, the Lord, but archayam eva, only in the deity form. Archa is deity form. I won't go into the etymology, which is actually quite interesting. But anyway, so, and then, and then the word archayam means in the deity form. And so archayam eva, only in the deity form, Archayam eva pujang jak shadhya. Archayam eva shadhya. Anyway, I forgot the 
thinking of the meanings. But it, so one who undertakes to worship only in the deity form and natad bhaktishu. Anyway, won't go into all the grammar. But you do not worship that deity, that same Hari, that same Krishna in the hearts of the devotees, natad bhaktishu chanyeshu, and in all other living beings. We come into the temple, we see the deity to practice so that when you walk out the door, you can see that same deity in the heart of every living being. This is practice for the world out there. And so the Bhagavatam says, if you only see Krishna in this form, such a person as Savakta, that devotee, Prakrita Smrita, is considered by authorities to be on the material platform. Because you think Krishna only exists in an external visible form. So that's your challenge. That's your real, that will be your glory. See Krishna in the corporate world. He's, he's everywhere. He's in every building, every office, every desk lamp, every secretary, every executive, every gopher. Krishna, <laughs> Krishna entirely pervades the corporate world. He's everywhere in the corporate world. And when you see that, then you've come to a higher platform of Krishna consciousness. Okay, how do we develop Krishna consciousness? Just by chanting and reading, that can be mechanical. Yes, but guess what? Hundreds, if not thousands of souls have left Krishna consciousness walking out the door of a temple. You know that. I mean, I mean, you can't count them, can you? So being mechanical is not a problem just for those who are outside temples. It's a problem. Sometimes it's more of a problem for those in the temples because they're seeing Krishna every day. They can take Krishna for granted. Whereas you don't, you're not here every day, all day. And therefore you come here, something very special. So, um, the issue of being mechanical is like, for example, imagine a concert pianist that has played a particular piece, or a particular piece for me like hundreds of times. And so it's a challenge to play the piece, not because, you know, this pianist can literally play the piece with his or her eyes closed. That's the paradox of practice. Because when you practice something, you can do it with your eyes closed, but you can do it expertly, right? In a sense, that's what practice is. Like athletes, they train so that when something happens, they just automatically do the right thing. And so the challenge is to develop the expertise that comes with repetition without succumbing to the dullness that comes with repetition. Yeah, so to do that, you have to just basically, you have to be intelligent. You have to monitor yourself and you have to know what your goal is. And if you see you're, you know, slipping into this dull mechanical thing, just, you know, pull yourself out of it. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Yes. I have uh, on here that Prabhu on uh, the 
Oh, could you? Uh, do we have? I wish we had a mic. Can you come over here and? Yeah. Sorry, I speak a little louder. Yes. Uh, you were mentioning with regard to seeing Krishna in the corporate world and things like that. So I, I also work in the corporate world, but sometimes we see that many of these corporate companies they are engaged in a lot of sinful activities. Even though we use some of the results that we get from the corporate world in the service of Krishna, but for me at least on a regular basis, being for me having followed Krishna consciousness for a while, it does strike me from time to time that many of these corporate companies are engaging in a lot of sinful activities, both to other living beings yes. and other humans as well. Okay, let me repeat that. Uh, the question is that in the corporate world, the uh, the corporate world engages in sinful activities and activities that are just harmful to to people, to animals, to the environment. Um, yeah, it, it's very hard to avoid. For example, we all have to pay taxes. Some of your tax money is going to things that you really are morally opposed to. And to parse your tax dollar, okay, I'll pay my taxes, but none of this can go to subsidize beef farmers, <laughs> and none of this can go to you know bail out companies that pollute the environment or something. It's just Krishna says in the Gita, "Do not lament for things beyond your control." For example, uh, Sanatana Goswami and Rupa Goswami working for a Muslim governor. And it is very likely that governor was sometimes killing people. So, I mean, to completely avoid plastic, actually there's one devotee, Mean Avatar, it's a very nice devotee family in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and she has a big bag and all the plastic they use at home, they put in this big bag and they pay someone to recycle it. So, I mean, there are steps we can take, but it's a very difficult world. For example, let's say you go to some natural food store that with almost like cosmic hypocrisy <laughs> claims to care about the environment even though they sell you know beef or something. Just like, you know, this most shameless hypocrisy. Let's say you go there and you, you buy, you know, fruits or vegetables, but you're helping to keep in business a company that is actively uh, supporting the meat industry. And you're helping to keep them in business. So Prabhupada therefore tend to be a little stoic on this point. And I think you just, I mean, obviously if you're working for a company that, that manages, you know, 12 slaughterhouses, you, you, you need to change your job <laughs> but if it's just kind of like the routine ordinary shameless hypocrisy <laughs> and, and, and world destructive actions you know, that's, <laughs> so yeah. hi krishna hi, yes hi krishna Marge. i have two questions uh, my first one is in our service what are we doing Whatever level of, of loud, loud, yes. Whatever, whatever service we might, um, you know, uh, do in the temple, in our daily preaching activities, or even um, just in general to each other. Sometimes we go through bad experiences, or we go through, uh, we receive negativity from others, and some, and most of the time, when you try to speak to someone about it, it's they're designed to purification. <laughs> could, could you? Yeah, yeah, the uh, the p word. So. <laughs> 
And this, this devotee said that sometimes in a temple environment or among devotees, people will act inappropriately and then just tell us that, well, you know, you're becoming purified. Okay, first of all, yes, you are becoming purified. And secondly, that person is becoming contaminated. <laughs> so, so therefore, uh, we just have to be firmly aware that Krishna sees everything. He knows who's doing what. And that ultimately our goal is not to have people treat us this way or that way. Ultimately, our goal is to please Krishna. So if in that situation you please Krishna, then you've uh, made lemonade out of a lemon, so to speak, which I'm probably the first person that ever used that expression. So remember, you heard it here first. <laughs> and my second, my second question, Mark. Some of us are quite young. And I know we are. <laughs> okay, the question is that some of us are quite young. <laughs> I myself am 22. I have, I know many other young boys around the country, and a lot of us have this issue where we feel like we lack this solid baseline to, to stand upon, to progress spiritually, or sometimes we lack the inspiration to do what um, you would have done or your godbrothers would have done right. at our age. Okay, let me repeat that. Sister Odi said that um, he's 22 years old, you know, kind of ballpark my age. <laughs> and. Um, and so sometimes they feel that they lack, the devotees in that group lack the baseline, or the another word you use, like the inspiration. Inspiration to the kinds of things that we did. I would say that, you know, we had an, a very powerful wind in our sails. If you're sailing and put your sail up and there's a strong wind or not a strong wind, it's not about your boat, it's about the wind. And so what we see is that Many devotees came to Prabhupada and they did amazing things and many of them actually could not sustain their spiritual practice. So, um, at the same time, it, I think it's definitely our duty to Prabhupada and Krishna to use whatever intelligence, ingenuity we have to try to find a way to present Krishna consciousness so that people in this country are attracted, inspired. And, uh, you know, whether you are a very large mammal or a spiritual movement, if you don't adapt, you go extinct. And if, if you look at the history of Vaishnavism, it's not a history of everyone always dressing this way or a history of everyone always cooking that way. For everyone. No, it's a history of adaptation. It's a history of, first of all, you have to be intelligent enough to understand Rupa Goswami's distinction in chapter six of Hakkir Samrita Sindhu between general principles and details. Someone who can't make that distinction cannot be a spiritual scientist. So if, if you claim to be a scientist, you can't distinguish between let's say alcohol and uh, oxygen, you know, you can't be a scientist. So we don't change the basic principles. So in the case of Prabhupada, he gave us certain regular principles in order us not to change them. Prabhupada gave us the philosophy and said, don't change it. He gave us an institutional framework and asked us to work within it. <clears throat> but as far as details, 
like how you dress and and you know what kind of music and everything. Of course, there is a standard, which is the mode of goodness, the laguna. So no, don't wear a bikini or you know a male bikini in, into the into the temple room, or don't do kind of crazy music. And there is such a thing actually as crazy music. And so, in other words, be in the mode of goodness. That's the standard Krishna gives. But find a way to reach people. If if you think that details, superficial details, are basic principles, like God will only love you if, if if you wear these kinds of clothes, which is obviously absurd, then uh, then you're not a spiritual scientist. Or if you think that basic principles are just details, yeah, you know, like uh, let's say not taking drugs and everything, that's just a detail. Actually, it's not just a detail. So there are certain basic principles that we should aspire, we should follow or aspire to follow. And then there are details. And there, there's a term used twice in the Bhagavatam, Desha Kalavi Bhagavit. Vit, you know, one who knows, Desha Kalavi Bhagavit, the differences of uh, place and time. And this quality this intelligence in the first canto is attributed to Bhishma. He's glorified as being Desha Kala Vibhagavit. And again, when in the fourth canto, when Narada Muni is instructing uh, Dhruva, Dhruva Maharaj, he tells him you should worship Krishna, but knowing the differences of time and place. So we are in a particular place and time right now, those of us who live in America. And our job is to not try to create, I don't know, like new Banaras or new Del, you know, like try try to rep. In fact, I had a, anyway, a senior preacher tell me, assure me, very senior preacher, that according to the Bhagavatam, India, in its physical features, ethnic and physical features, is actually a mirror reflection of the spiritual world. Which is very interesting, because who would have guessed Half the spiritual world is Muslim culture. <laughs> you know, the Krishna consciousness is full of surprises. But anyway, so, and he even suggested, you know, so the word is pratibimba. The word pratibimba in Sanskrit means reflection. Literally means counter image, pratibimba. And so I said, I don't think so. So then I looked it up in the Bhagavatam, and yeah, nothing like that is stated in the Bhagavatam. So um, we have to be able to make this distinction. We have to know what is a basic principle. What is a detail? And it is our task to find a way. It's just like, if, I mean, there's so many people in this country, in every country, they want to be, you know, rock and roll stars. Am I dating myself? Is there such a thing as rock? Okay, if they want to be a rock and roll star, they want to be, I don't know, a political star. And they have to find a way to reach the people. And of course, you know, there's even a few of them who are not shameless hypocrites and who actually want to keep their principles and at the same time, you know, make it. That's the real challenge. Of course, it's a challenge just to follow our principles and everything, but the real challenge to us. So in a sense, I would say that those of us who were serving back in the 60s or 70s, in one sense, had it much easier. For one thing, the Western world, including America, 
was just completely enthralled with um, Indian mysticism. You know, everyone had to have a guru. The Beatles went to Rishikesh, you know, to find a guru. Everyone needed a guru. And so, and, and there was all this counterculture and hip people and hippie people and this and that. So we were just kind of preaching to the choir. And a certain percentage of those people joined. You know, th there's that old saying, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so what Krishna did, Krishna intervened in human history. Because there's really no other way to explain this like madness for Indian mysticism, which had never occurred in the Western world before and never occurred since. And so Krishna changed history, made everyone mad after Eastern and especially Indian mysticism. He also, as Prabhupada himself often said, he took a lot of past life devotees like Purva Janna Bhaktas, he took a lot of past life devotees, just sprinkled them around the world. So when they heard the Sankirtan party, it sort of reported for duty. <laughs> and Prabhupada also, well, and Krishna also sent Prabhupada, a great pure devotee. So Prabhupada is still present for anyone that has eyes to see. But in a sense, you, people in your generation, you have to do the heavy lifting. You're not just sort of you know, skating around in a rink in which everyone already sort of sort of inclined to what you're saying, at least the young people. You've actually got to do the hard work. You've got to really use your brains, use your intelligence and figure out a way to reach people. Figure out a way to take Krishna consciousness. You have to discover the rationality of it, the reason of it. When I took sannyasa in 1972 at the very mature and experienced age of 23, <laughs> I had the privilege of taking sannyas several years before my brain fully formed, which was, because, you know, neurologically speaking, it's not to your 29 or so that, you know, a man's brain, if it ever matures, if it's, uh, you know, it was around. Anyway, so, so I, I wrote Prabhupada a letter and said that I was going to travel and preach in the universities in America. And Prabhupada wrote back to me and, and kind of said in his language, the love of God, he said, do not present, do not present Krishna consciousness as just rules and regulations. It's the most sublime philosophy. We don't, we're not, we don't just follow rules. We start with an understanding of a super philosophy of a most powerful spiritual tradition. And then secondarily, we learn certain principles that will get us there. It's like, let's say, for example, someone wants to travel to Norway for some reason. Now, if you decide you want to go to Norway, then you start figuring out how do I get there? How much does it cost? Am I going to take a plane? Am I going to take a cruise liner? Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? How do I pay for it? You know, do I have to make a bank transfer? All the rules, all the technical points come after your decision that you want to go to Norway. Let's say you, let's say you want to be a doctor. You know, it's like grueling. There's something almost masochistic about that program. If you want to be a doctor, you know, you've got to take all these courses and you know what it's like. And so why would you try to convince someone to go through all the austerity and difficulty of, you know, being a, a pre-med and a medical student and going through your residency and all this torture 
if the person already says, but I don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> so why in the world would you want to tell somebody about this or that rule if they don't want to be Krishna conscious? So what Prabhupada was telling me is, we have to convince people that it is absolutely in your rational self-interest to become Krishna conscious. We have to understand that rationally. Not just, well, we believe it, and if you don't do it, you're a bad person, and we have all kinds of names we can call you, the least of them being karmi, and the worst being things like demon and asura. So, you know, we throw the K-bomb. So, <laughs> so in that sense, I mean, all of you really have, the, I mean, you gotta do the real work. And that is figure out how First of all, you have to figure out how Krishna consciousness is a science. And then once you understand that, you have to communicate that. Just like sometimes advanced scientists, they teach undergraduate classes because they notice that often undergraduate science classes are just not well taught. So that's the task of your generation. Understand Krishna consciousness as a spiritual science, which it is, and then how to communicate that, how to persuade people. In relevant ways. So I think your job is more difficult and Krishna has given you more, let's say, material, I don't know you call it street creds. You know, <laughs> Krishna has given you these uh, advantages because your task is harder. So if there are no other questions, uh, yes. Okay, let me repeat that for the uh, our viewing audience. I mean, people out there on these various media platforms should really appreciate that there are no commercials. <laughs> you know, this is not like free YouTube. So. Actually, I should have commercials then say if you want to hear me about commercials. <laughs> so uh, the question was, or the beginning of the question was that there seems to be some kind of competition between devotees who are intellectuals <laughs> and those who are coming from a less intellectual background. Yeah. So, but in the, in the, in the, in the Purana, we find it says, and actually says, means in the Purana saying, by your intelligence, by your sophisticated knowledge, by your own endeavor, you cannot achieve God. Okay, let me repeat that. There's a statement in Shastra Tarko Pratishtam. I will translate that for there may be one or two of you who don't know Sanskrit. So Tarka, Tarka in Sanskrit means logic, reason, and uh, Pratishta means foundation. So Apratishta means logic is not the foundation. And what was the other quote you gave? I said that. Yeah, the main the yeah actually. Yes, instrumental. So anyway, not yes, but what is that referring to? That you have to understand. The shastra is saying that by logic, by intelligence, there is something you cannot do. What is that something? The something is if you want if you want to achieve Krishna, then the only way is that service. Yes, however. That means that logic 
does not bring me to Krishna. However, logic definitely helps me to understand. For example, you see, there's another side which you didn't mention. I'm not trying to understand God by logic. I actually, when I was 20 years old, I was, uh, I was home from the summer, for the summer uh, from Berkeley, and uh, I bought a little blue, you know, Bhagavad Gita at the local Los Angeles temple, which was on La Cienega Boulevard there. And by reading that book, by chanting Hare Krishna, I became convinced that Krishna is God. Now, I didn't become convinced just by logic splitting or by all. However, once I understood that, then to come to a clear understanding of what that means that Krishna is God and how to explain it by others, I very much use intelligence because here's a verse you didn't quote. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Teshang, this is 1010. Uh, Teshan, for them, for those people, Teshan, Satata Jutana, who are always engaged in Bhakti Yoga, Bhajatan Priti Purvakam, and serving, worshiping with love, the Dhami, Krishna says, I give them something by which they can come to me. I give them something by which they come to me. What does Krishna give them? The practice of spiritual rationality. Krishna says, Dadami Buddhi Yogantam. He doesn't say even say they're Dadami Bhakti Yogantam. He doesn't even say I give them Bhakti Yoga. He says I give them Buddhi Yoga. And Buddhi is a Sanskrit word which means intelligence, reason, logic, analysis. And so uh, Krishna says that. He says in Bhagavad Gita that Ansarvasya. Uh, no, no, sorry, wrong verse. That Sarvasya Chaham Riddhi Sandhivishto Matak Smithir Gyanam for me come knowledge. Remember, so Krishna, if you look, what you need to do, and it's infomercial alert, in the book I wrote, The Guide to Bhagavad Gita, I trace, among many other things, all the places in the Gita where Krishna uses the word Bhuti intelligence, and he uses it a lot. Intelligence, rational, analytic intelligence. For example, chapter two of the Bhagavad Gita, Prabhupada titled as um, the contents of the Gita summarized. So therefore, this large chapter two of the Gita basically, well, summarizes the entire Gita. Now, this chapter pivots on verse 39. Because in Bhagavad Gita 239, Krishna says that everything I've told you so far is this, and now everything else, everything else in this chapter is that. So Krishna says, Esha teya vihita sankye buddhi So what I've told you so far is, uh, is buddhi in Krishna consciousness. But Krishna says, I've explained to you, Bhuti Sankhye, philosophically. And he says, Yogetu Mantu, now here as I explained it in practice. So Krishna introduces these two terms, Sankhya and Yoga, which means philosophical analytic understanding, and Yoga, which means practice. And then in chapter 5, Krishna says, 
Sankhya-yoga-pratat-bhala-pravadantina-pandita. Those who are childish, those who are literally bala, those who are childish think that Sankhya, philosophical understanding, and yoga practice are different. Are different. The childish, the immature think that. Ekamapyastitaksamya, one who uh, practices well, very nicely, one of these, Ubayor Vindate Balam, achieves the fruit of both. And so, and, and so therefore, and he Prabhupada himself says this. In his, in his famous statement, which he repeatedly makes, Prabhupada says that religion without philosophy is simply sentimentalism or fanaticism. You need both. And some people falsely think that to combine the religion or the spirituality of Krishna consciousness with philosophy simply means to practice bhakti yoga and to know the philosophy. In other words, to memorize a doctrine. But actually, if you look at the way Prabhupada explains these things, what he actually means is you have to know how to do philosophy. Yes. Yes. However, however, that's what Krishna says in the Gita, because this Brahman mastered the, the devotion, the devoted practice. He got the result of the understanding. But Lord Chaitanya did not tell Rupa Goswami or Snatha Goswami, throw away all your learning, just, you know, just, just think of me and cry. <laughs> Actually, the followers of Lord Chaitanya are famous for being great intellectuals, for writing great books, for engaging in, in extraordinary analytic studies of Bhakti Yoga. Just as Lord Chaitanya didn't tell that humble but devoted Brahman, you know, you need to go to college, he didn't tell Rupan Sanatan, you need to go to South India, throw away all your books, forget all your learning, and just go, you know, just go to South India and cry with that illiterate Brahman. And the simple fact is, as Prabhupada himself explained so many times, if this movement is going to be successful, we need to attract intelligent people. That Brahman, that illiterate Brahman was a great devotee, but how many intelligent people did he bring to Krishna consciousness? And Prabhupada, who understood obvious sociology and socio-historical dynamics knew, as he said many times, that unless we can somehow persuade and attract educated, intelligent people, this movement will not make it. And so therefore, discouraging intelligence, discouraging serious philosophy, discouraging erudition is not at all what Prabhupada did. He did the opposite. Prabhupada's first instruction to me was stay in school, get a good education. Prabhupada did not say to me, uh, forget your university education, you know, just read my books. He said, you need this other education. 
So basically, there's a problem, I think, among devotees that those who are not educated uh, don't want someone to be more educated than them. And so there's a tendency to, I'm not saying you, I just, I know you're playing the devil's advocate, keyword devil. So um, that, that's just basic socio-historical reality. As Prabhupada said many times, Prabhupada often told me, but he wrote letters to me, you can read it in database, that it's very good you're presenting Krishna consciousness in universities because he said we need to attract the intelligent class. He said this constantly. He said, that if, he said that if his disciples could get PhDs, including the women, by the way, he specifically said, including the women, if his disciples could get PhDs and teach our philosophy in the universities, he said that would save America and change the world. He didn't just say everybody just, you know, sit down and cry. He said that if we could teach in universities, get PhDs, that would change the world. So, yeah, we have to look at the whole picture. And and, and logic doesn't mean, actually, just to, to round it, to finish off this little discussion, Prabhupada wrote me a letter once, 1971, when I was a Grihasta. You know, honk if you like Grihastas. <laughs> So I was a Grihasta in 1971 and uh, president of Gainesville, just down the road. And uh, Prabhupada wrote me a letter in which he said, it's kind of, you know, his jargon. He said, there is philosophical speculation and there's mental speculation. Mm-hmm. Prabhupada gave the example, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Rasoham Apsukontea, I'm the taste of water. He said, now, if you speculate, is that true or not? Is that true or not? That's mental speculation. If you accept, yes, Krishna is a taste in water, but what the heck does that mean? You know, what does it mean that Krishna is a taste of water? He said, that's philosophical speculation, and we do that. So what I'm recommending here, and thank you for bringing this up to clarify, what I'm recommending here is that we desperately need devotees who not only know the philosophy, but actually know philosophy. And when Prabhupada said we need to combine religion and philosophy, he didn't just mean religion and the philosophy, he meant religion and philosophy. And we engage in philosophical speculation all the merry day. And, uh, and the result is, I can't tell you how many letters I've gotten. I mean, a lot of letters. Uh, people saying that I came back to Krishna consciousness because I felt I was given a way to be a devotee without checking in my brain at the door. So, anyway, that's a brief response. Uh, boy. Okay, maybe we'll go in order you, and then, yes. Angles. You're going to have angles. Philosophical angles, yes. And that's where we can get into, if we're attached to our angle, and then you get a bunch of people, employees, and then you get bad factions. 
Okay, as far as factions and angles, yeah. I, I think, that, first of all, I don't think that I'm a better devotee than someone else because I do this kind of philosophical stuff. It's just what I do. You know, I mean, if, if I had a flat tire and devotee came along to fix my tire, you know, I'd give 100 pounds of philosophy for that devotee to fix my tire. So it's not a question of factions. It's a question of using our intelligence in Krishna service. To say that we shouldn't study is absurd. It's just like look at Ramanujacharya. He's of course before Lord Chaitanya. But he was one of the. He was he was a genius. He was a philosophical genius. He wrote this incredible commentary on Vedanta Sutra, validated Yabhushan. If anything distinguishes the Gaudiya Vaishnavas, if you look at the you know the time of Lord Chaitanya, it's their incredible. It's their great erudition. That they were great scholars. The six Goswamis were all great scholars. Lord Chaitanya's most intimate followers were great scholars, academics. So the idea that, you know, we shouldn't do that kind of service is, is simply absurd. And it's not a question of factions. But for example, if I, if I hear somebody say like, you know, claiming to be a devotee, that, you know, we're beyond Bhagavad Gita and we don't follow what Bhagavad Gita says because Krishna can be unfair. I feel it's my duty to clarify that so that people don't get bewildered by this nonsense. But it's not a question of you know trying to be right. It's it's a question of trying to spread the Krishna consciousness movement. I don't have time just to argue with devotees all day. I'm trying to serve Prabhupada. So I don't see it's like they say if it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it. So I'm not sure what's broken. In other words, I don't see some major problem, some forest fire in ISKCON of, of faction. So if it's not broken, don't fix it. Yes? If you don't mind, I just want to share one verse that kind of relates to what you're talking about. Okay, uh, maybe you'll have to use the microphone. Maybe we won't show your handsome face, but just the <laughs> microphone. I think it's probably a little closer. Now this verse is from the Chaitanya Charitamrita, chapter, Arivita <clears throat> chapter 8, text 15. It's one of my favorite verses because it relates to the logic and the importance of it. If you are indeed interested in logic and argument, kindly apply them to the mercy of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. If you do so, you will find such mercy strikingly wonderful. And then another point is, yes. There's a quote, and I can't think of the exact location. It's in Chaitanya Charitamrita. The Shudra says in the purport, devotees are like scientists. They do their research individually, and he says, like in academic circles, they come together and discuss what they realize. Because as you said, the Dami Uri Yoga, based on Taysom you've done what service you've done, and Krishna rewards according to that, that understanding. So like scientists, we don't condemn each other. Right. We share our realizations in a safe environment and then try to enhance each other's understanding. Yes, very good. Excellent points. Excellent verses. So, Prabhupada, by the way, did say that he came to the West and in general started ISKCON to, to reestablish a, an authentic Brahmin order in the world. So how can we say that Brahmin shouldn't be learned? I mean, that's what distinguishes just like Vidya, Vina, or something, anyway. So, anything else? Uh, Parampara Prabhu. You mentioned 
You mentioned being a, a householder and a president. I mentioned being a householder and a president. President of Temple. Yes. And you're on your way to Gainesville because in, a, in several days there's going to be a festival. 50th anniversary. Yeah, on July 29th, it's a 50th anniversary of Prabhupada's visit to Gainesville. Whoa. 50th anniversary. I Hi. was a Grihasta Temple president there. And uh, and so uh, Prabhupada spent the night there, right? He spent the night there with us and he stayed up after midnight preaching and initiating devotees. So we're going to talk about all the wonderful things Prabhupada did and all the wonderful devotees, such as my former wife and Amarendra, Pir Krishna Maharaj, who was a uh, new brahmachari then. And so we're going to be talking about that, having, you know, the festival in Gainesville will be mostly talking about Prabhupada. There will not be an Abhishek or a um, fire yoga. But we do plan to talk a lot about Prabhupada. That's Thursday coming up on Thursday. This Thursday, yes. Thursday the 29th. Yes. We broadcast. Yes. We broadcast. Yes. You put together a book about your experiences with Prabhupada and your history. Thank you. <laughs> put together a book about my experiences with Prabhupada. Yeah, I hope I'll get live long enough to do that, but thank you for that. So, uh, if that's all, any other last points? Uh, thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. Ah! Thanks to everybody out there. Hare Krishna.